This is The Resilient Life, where we believe that every human will struggle in this life. Our challenge is to struggle well. I'm Ryan Mannion. I lost my brother to war, my mom to cancer, and I'm the daughter of a retired Marine. I'm also a wife, mom, author, and president of one of the nation's leading veteran service organizations. Join me and some incredible guests as we explore the value of struggling well through life's inevitable challenges. Welcome to The Resilient Life. I am so excited to announce our guest today, Tom Beaupre, who is the bass player for Florida Georgia Line. A little bit of background. Um, Florida Georgia Line, all 12 of their singles have gone number one, and they have sold 4.2 million, that's right, 4.2 million albums worldwide. And they remain the first and only country act to receive RIAA's Diamond Certification with 10 million copies sold for their breakout song, Cruise. Beyond that, a fun fact is Tom grew up in Paoli, Pennsylvania, which is actually not too far from here and where a ton of my family currently lives. And he graduated from Bloomsburg University, which is a great state school right here in Pennsylvania. And he's also a very devoted husband and father. Welcome to The Resilient Life, Tom. Hey, thanks for having me. Yes, it's, um, it's great to have you here. And, and um, so I want to walk through a little bit to start off. I want to walk through that time in your life. You graduate from college with a business degree, and then you decide to take this leap of faith and move to Nashville to pursue your love of music. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I kind of, well, I like went to college with a business degree and then switched to major uh, with a music and had a minor in business because I kind of, after uh, maybe a semester or two of business classes, I was like, eh, all right, let's flip this. And I was starting to just enjoy music more. But um, yeah, after I graduated, I worked as a newspaper salesman, um, which was like in 06. And that was kind of like the start of the internet. Um, so that wasn't an easy sell. <laughs> and I was just like, I can't do this for 20 years, you know? Uh, and I was like, screw it, let's go. It's either New York or Nashville. And New York, you know, was well, as expensive as Nashville is now, but back then, uh, you know, I had a friend paying, I think it was like $1,200 in rent and Nashville, I could get a place for maybe 300 bucks a month with a roommate. So Nashville was the easy choice. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about where your love of music started. Um, you know, when did you first start not just enjoying it as a, a patch passion, but thinking that you wanted this to be a career? Yeah, um, I would say in high school, I like started really, I learned the guitar. I think I started with acoustic and a bunch of my friends and I like at youth group would start to like be the band. And uh, I think it was fun to just kind of like, obviously like be the center of attention, but then also like, it was just a blast to like sing with your friends and um, you start learning cover songs and everyone's singing along with you. Uh, so that was like always kind of really exhilarating whenever you got to do it but then in college I remember playing like an open mic night or something or like we got booked at a bar I want to say and we played for like probably three hours or something but um it, it I just remember that like leaving and being like man you know you play the right song and people sing along they have a good time they get up and dance and it was just like I want to do that like how do I do that uh full time and so 
I want to say that was like my junior year of college. And I just like remember distinctly walking out with my buddy that I played with and being like, that was like top five moments of my life. Like, let's do that more. Like, how do we do that? You know? And uh, I, I want to say that was like the point where I was like, if I can figure out how to do this the rest of my life, I'll be very happy. So. Yeah. I, I, I have probably zero musical talent, but I always performed in um, our talent shows in junior high. And I remember we, the one year, me and two of my friends sang Total Eclipse of the Heart. And we worked on it for probably six months. And, you know, for amateurs, we were pretty good. And I remember that feeling. So, you know, for, in a small sense, I get that sense of what you were feeling. Like, it's exhilarating when you're up there on the stage and, um, you know, you're giving your all to the audience. Um, it's got to be a pretty incredible feeling on the platforms you get to, to do it on now. Um, the change, so, like, you get confident in, uh, like, I feel like the first few times you're kind of like, okay, don't screw it up. And then when you get to a point where you're just like confident and it's fun for you, and then you see that returned and reciprocated through like people, even in a bar setting, that's when it changed for me. That was like, cause you kind of like, I feel like the first few years you're just kind of like, okay, how do I play this again? And then there's this like switch that happens and you can just kind of have fun and, and forget about the like uh, minutia of it and really just like let go and, and enjoy. And like, it, it, it becomes a conversation. And that's where I uh, have the most fun, especially like nowadays, um, you know, you, you definitely have some muscle memory on shows. Uh, but when you can kind of like space out and just see in the crowd, people just having like the time of their life. And, you know, for some people, it's like, like I've seen a lot of this on Instagram now. It's like, you know, that's by like one thing every summer I go to a concert and have a good time. Uh, and you can kind of just see it. And it, that's like, that's where you're just like, as frustrating as a day could be, you get to that moment. And you're like, all right, this is awesome. You know? And yeah, for sure. It's good. It's all worth it. Yeah. So my group of girlfriends from high school, there's five of us and we all have busy lives. We've got kids, husbands, work, everything going on. And so um, we always commit to three or four times a year, we go to concerts together. That's our thing. And we'll go to like everything and anything. We've gone to the bad boy family reunion tour to the last concert we saw before COVID hit was Fleetwood Mac, which was incredible. But, um, well, I want to talk a little bit about you get to Nashville and you take a job at Starbucks. Is that right? Yeah. And then you don't actually pick up your guitar for a couple of years. That's what it felt like. So <laughs> I, uh, I did a bunch of other stuff, but my mom was like, you, you gotta have insurance. And so Starbucks, you can work 20 hours and, um, you get health insurance through that. So that was kind of like my, I guess my deal with my mom was like, all right, I'll do this. But then I was doing, you know, gigs in town. I was uh, running sound for a couple places that did um, like special events, anything from like a wedding to a CD release, like little big town did a CD release party there. And I'd like set up the speakers and um, nothing like too exciting, but it, it still felt like I was involved um, with music. Uh, but yeah, I kind of felt like, um, when I moved here to get a gig, it was one of those that, you know, you, you have that conversation with someone and they'd be like, well, who have you played for? And it's like, well, I just moved to town. And they're like, Oh, cool. Well, you know, hit me back when you got some experience. And it's like, well, how do you get the experience if you know, like you won't give me an opportunity. So yeah, I feel like I played maybe like four shows in three years is what it felt like. So it was really tough in the beginning. And 
do you go from a place of, you know, these, for better lack of a word, odd jobs, setting up speakers, playing little gigs? How does that go from you doing that to, okay, now I'm playing bass for Florida Georgia Line? <laughs> Very slowly. <laughs> um, so let's see, I moved to Nashville in 07 and I did, you know, everything from that. I even, uh, we call them stagehands. Uh, you'll see like at the end of the show, all these people run to the stage and just start tearing. So you get paid, like, I think at the time I was like eight bucks an hour and you just go like, you're, uh, you know, you're just help. You just like stand there and you're like, okay, what do I do? And they're like, go pull those cables and wrap them up. And so it was like very kind of, uh, I don't know. It was, it was like, it was a tough job because it was just grunt labor. Um, and, but like the first job I did with that company was uh, for Justin Timberlake. And so you see this like glimpse of like, okay, that's where I'm working towards. Um, but then you have to go like wrap cables for two hours <laughs> and you're just exhausted. Um, and so through all that, I just kind of was like, all right, whatever I have to do to get to playing on a stage, I'm going to do. And so at Starbucks, I met, I had like a lot of weird coincidences at Starbucks. Um, I met this girl who was like, just working night shifts to pay off her car. And she worked at a management company. And so she kind of connected me with a band and I was uh, selling their t-shirts. It was a band called thousand foot crutch. It was like a Christian rock band. Uh, so I did that for like three years. Um, but through that, I got some opportunities. They had a side project, like this pop punk side project that I got to play with for a tour. Um, and so that was like, it was like these little glimmers of hope where it was just like, okay, um, you know, you're, you're playing to 200 people, but I'm like, Hey, I'm on a stage, I'm playing bass. Uh, I'm getting there. Uh, and through those like three and a half years, I ended up meeting Brian and Tyler. They had just graduated from college and, uh, my buddy Justin was living with them and I needed a place to live. And so he was just like, yo, come meet these guys, hang out. And I ended up moving in with them like a couple months later. And, uh, they were just songwriters at the time, but they were like seeing, every time they went out and played like more friends would come out. And so they're like, Hey, we're, we're thinking about doing like a band thing in town. And uh, so Justin played drums. I played guitar or bass. And then they had a buddy that played guitar. And so we would just play in town. And I mean, free shows, like it's not, I wasn't getting paid or anything. Like it was just like buddies playing some shows. Um, and it was like really Southern songs where I was just like, I'm from Philly and I have no idea what you guys are talking about. <laughs> Now, are you guys Florida Georgia Line? Is that your band name at the time? Or is it just like... So I think they like, they were like, hey, if we're going to play shows, we need a name. And uh, I, I want to say it was like, they have a video somewhere that I saw where it was like 2 a.m. And they were just like, what if we were called Florida Georgia Line? Because I'm from Florida, and you're from Georgia. And they're like, yeah, let's do it. And so they just kind of stuck with it. Um, and so, but yeah, it was like one of those where I was still touring with this Christian band like every weekend. And so you know, if I was home or if it was like a weekday show, I would just go play whatever club they were playing in town. Um, and sometimes it was like 12 people. Sometimes it was like a hundred. Um, but it was mostly like their friends from college. But I noticed like once they kind of started, um, putting music out, I think it was on, uh, um, what was it back then before Spotify, but they had a song on Sirius radio okay. uh, that kind of did pretty well. And like, all of a sudden it was like, 50 people turned into a hundred to like selling out a small club just in Nashville, but you're still like, what's happening right now? Right. Sure. Uh, yeah, it was cool. I mean, it was just like me playing with friends, you know, it was an opportunity to play bass. So um, I don't know if anybody expected it to kind of quite do what it did. So. Yeah. So I saw that along with playing bass, you also help write 
and produced with the band. Is that correct? Not with the, not with those two guys. I kind of okay. did it on my own. Yeah. They, um, they, they kind of wrote everything by themselves. And then when they signed a, a management deal, they had some writers that they got with that was all within that company. And they kind of did that whole first record with like them. Um, so unfortunately I wish I was a part of all that, but I just get to play the live show. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm really interested in this idea of like the creative process when you're, you're writing a song and especially with, um, you know, songs that make it big, right? So you take the song Cruise, which I, I would say arguably is the most recognizable song for Florida Georgia Line. Yeah. I always wonder as that song's being written or the first time that song's being played before anyone's heard it outside of the studio, are, are you guys thinking, oh my gosh, this is going to be big? Or is it a total shock when certain songs make it and, and blow up and others don't? Do you, do you, do you have any in, uh, insight on that? Uh, so sometimes like we get what's called a work tape. Um, so when you write a song, sorry, my dog's going crazy. Hopefully that's not too loud. Um, when you write a song, you'll, you'll do a work tape. And, uh, and so sometimes it's like literally a voice memo on the phone and it's, you know, a couple guys with an acoustic guitar. And well, this one was like a really, like, it was funny cause crew started almost like reggae style. And so we get the demo. I was like, Oh, this is a cool song. It's kind of fun. Um, and we played it live a few times and I was like, yeah, this is a cool song. It's easy to sing along to. But then when they got Joey Moore, their producer, um, I remember he sent us like a version of the song done and all of a sudden it's like this pop rock country song. And I was like, Oh, okay. Like, okay. <laughs> like, um, and there's a few moments like you, kind of you get the song and you're like, you got something. Um, but you never know how people are going to react to it. Like, I don't think we, any of us saw that it was going to be like this crazy song that you know was going to change everybody's lives especially like you know i would say mine and especially theirs as artists but it's just kind of um you knew it was good i didn't know it was that good you know but yeah. it was just i think yeah. it was like also a little bit of a uh, right timing like i think country music hadn't really changed in a while and so people were just ready for that next sound and i felt like that's what it was so that's awesome um so I want to talk, I saw somewhere that you talk about measuring your time in music using tours rather than years. Yeah. So explain that. What does that mean? So um, it's, it's, it, it can be a bit like Groundhog's Day when you're touring. It's, you, know, you know, it's like every day is another parking lot, another venue that kind of looks the same. Um, and so it's hard to really like put, like remember months, years, just because it's like, wait, who are we? And so the way I kind of like categorize it in my mind is who are we touring with and, and what year was that? And so I can kind of like figure out what year <laughs> I did things by like, okay, we we're on tour with Jason Aldean while well, we toured with him in 14. So, uh, so yeah, like I just kind of, it's so hard uh, to remember. I mean, if you do anything like in 2013, we played 240 shows, something like that. So um to like try to remember details or like what year was it, it's easier to be like, okay, who are we touring with? Where was it? What did the venue look like? And so we just, I feel like a lot of us kind of turn it into uh, like a tour instead of what year. And that's just an easier way to kind of keep it in your mind. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about tour life because yeah. in my head, 
tour life is like watching the movie Almost Famous, right? <laughs> You're like, it's just this utopia of different places, different parties, different grand experiences. I'm sure it's nothing like that. And um, I'd love to kind of hear what that looks like, 240 shows. So, wow, you're, you're basically just gone. You're, you're on the road all year, pretty much. Yeah, so that, that was like when Cruise hit. And so we were out with Luke Bryan that year. But uh, we also were doing like radio shows because Cruise was taking off. And then we also were doing, um, we ended up doing like our own tour. Um, so when we were out with Luke Bryan, uh, we were doing a bunch of radio shows. So essentially it would be like, if we went home, we'd come home Sunday morning and then it would be like do laundry, repack, and we'd probably leave like Monday morning, Monday afternoon and then do a radio show somewhere Tuesday, radio show somewhere Wednesday, maybe a show Wednesday night. And then Thursday, Friday, Saturday would be shows with Luke Bryan. Um, and so it's just like nonstop. And uh, so that year I felt like we probably were closer to what you guys would imagine, like it was like, it was <laughs> like, it was kind of like, all right, let's have a beer or a shot to get through this. Cause I'm so exhausted and I don't know how else to make it. Yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, you wake up hungover and you're like, well, what's the best way to get rid of a hangover? Let's take another shot. And so it was just kind of this like uh, cycle that we kind of, I, I think it was just from exhaustion and like excitement, obviously like we're, we're realizing the success that we're having. So everybody's just super pumped. But um, I think by the end of 13, we kind of started to realize like this isn't one a good way to live and two uh like we're not going to be able to sustain this you know and so when we toured with um Aldine in 14 you know he obviously went through his whole thing and he, he had it like we a lot of these artists will have um they call them vibe rooms um sometimes it's like a party and they'll bring people back with guests and whatever and it's a big party and other people keep it very locked down and it's like if you're not on this tour you're not allowed in here and now Dean's was very locked down. Um, and we kind of saw the benefit of that where it's like, oh, okay, you don't have to like rage until 2 a.m. You can kind of like have a few drinks and then go to bed and wake up feeling good and get a workout in. And I feel like 14 was that year for us where it was just kind of like, all right, if we're going to put on a good show, feel well, be able to come home and like not need to nap for the entire day, like this is probably how we need to do it. Um, and then in 14, a lot of us started actually getting married as well. So it was kind of like, all right, now let's really be smart about, you know, Instagram and, and how people are perceiving us. Cause I feel like it was just that year of like the wrong picture could be mistaken. Even if it was like 12 seconds of your day, like it could look really drastic and ruin a marriage, ruin a life, ruin a career. And so we just started to take it serious, you know, and, uh, and we all kind of just were like, it, it's not worth someone mistaking something very innocent for something not, you know? And so I feel like, uh, that in 15, we got a, a trainer on the road. So we were, you know, doing morning workouts. We were, uh, just drinking a lot less and being a lot healthier. And I think it was just a much more sustainable. So it's kind of boring now when you come backstage, it's like, we're sitting around in a lawn chair, having a beer, talking about like our kids, um, compared to what it used to be, you know, it's just, I got, I try to golf a lot on the road. So it's like, it's just, yeah, it's, it's pretty boring backstage now. It's a bunch of adults. <laughs> but you've, so you've, you've experienced both sides of the tour life, the crazy tour life and the more subdued. And, and, and that was my question. I was wondering like, 
okay, so you're going through this tour. It's crazy. Like, are you married? Because as a wife, I'd be like, what's going on there? And, and you also think about this idea, like you said, the wrong post, the wrong thing said, um, especially in today's environment, does that weigh on you at all? This idea that you see a celebrity can say one thing and their, their career is ruined, right? Um, and and it, there's, it's a very sensitive time. There's a lot of heightened awareness around everything. Um, do you think about that at all? I do. Um, I've talked to my wife a lot about this because obviously like I'm, uh, you know, I don't have, they have like 2 million followers on Instagram. I only have, I think like almost, I think it's like 8,500 or something, but it's still like a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, and, and especially with everything that's been happening, I, I kind of got to this point where I was like, I feel damned if I do and damned if I don't. Cause it's like, if you say something, someone's going to say, you're not saying it right. If you don't say anything, you know, you're the asshole that didn't speak up. And yeah. so, uh, you know, me and my wife talked a lot about it and I, I just kind of felt like eventually you're going to have to speak up and have an opinion and not everybody's going to love it. And that's just the way it is. Um, and I remember, uh, who was it? Like Taylor Swift at one point said something like, if you have haters, you're doing something right, you know, and, uh, and people love to hate on success. And so you have to keep that in mind too, where it's just like, you get to a certain point that no matter what you say, someone's going to, hate it either because they disagree or because they're trying to get attention on hating it. And so um, I just try to be really respectful and, and I always run everything by my wife and just be like, can you make sure I'm not missing anything and, and just really stand for what I believe in, you know? I love so. that. I do, I do the same thing um, uh, with my husband. I'll go to post something on Instagram. I'm like, do you see, are you seeing anything with this? And, you know, and, and sometimes he'll check and be like, well, you might not put it that way. That could be interpreted. I'm like, good point. So it's always good to have that, that checker in the background for sure. Um, so obviously right now we're going through the first pandemic of our lifetime. Everything's crazy. Um, you know, a lot of the work that I do is external. I do a lot of speaking. I'm out speaking to a lot of uh, corporate audiences and that's not happening anymore. Um, I'm, I'm, we're definitely trying to take that virtual approach. Uh, it's not the same, but it's what you can do. What are you guys doing? Uh, I see a lot of bands that are doing, you know, I've, I've seen like Post Malone did an amazing show. I don't know if you saw the show he did where he did Nirvana covers, but it oh, was yeah. incredible. You have to look it up on YouTube. It was so good. Um, but you see a lot of these artists that are doing, um, virtual shows are you guys doing any of that what's your plan with covid now that it looks like it's not just going to be a thing that's here for a few months yeah um we actually have a zoom call tomorrow and i'm hoping uh to kind of find out if we have a plan because um i think everybody was kind of hanging on to some hope that maybe by this fall we could do something um and it's not looking good for that either so i know we like we're supposed to tour with kenny chesney this summer and it just kind of moved everything to next summer um but that's still not till may so i'm kind of like surely we'll do something before then but uh yeah it's just tough because i feel like if you do the online stuff it's i don't know at what point are you devaluing yourself you know and, and then at the same time like you want the quality to be a certain level which is going to take studio or people around and film crews and this and so it's just like a balancing act um 
I know our guys are putting out some new music. So it's like, you're trying also not to step on, you know, radio cycles and album cycle. And so it's just a really confusing time. <laughs> I've heard a lot of like random stuff. We did the zoom or uh, the um, Instagram songs where like all of us are in uh, a video, that kind of thing. We did one, like one of those, we did one for CMT. Uh, but I feel like, you know, people are getting bored with those. So I don't know. It's tough. Like, yeah, I, I feel like in the beginning, it was like, oh, we're going to do happy hours with our friends every Friday night on Zoom. And oh, this concert's on and we can right. watch this online. And now you're just like, I'm over it. Like I've sat on Zoom calls all day for work and I don't want to sit and watch somebody's face on a computer again tonight. And it, it is, it's, um, you know, a lot of the events we do at the Travis Manning Foundation are large in-person events. Mm -hmm. And you know, we've had to move into this virtual environment and it's, it's so challenging to, I think the biggest thing for me is this whole idea of the unknown, right? Um, I remember when COVID first hit, we talked a lot about, okay, you know, we're in a lockdown for, I, I think at first it was like 15 days and it was like, oh my God, we can't leave the house for 15 days. The kids aren't going to be in school for 15 days. This is wild. And to look back at that point in time now, it's, it's, I'm like, bring me back there because we were naive and we had no idea what was ahead of us. But right now with everything going on, it's, I think you have to start to identify that we're living in a new world, right? And things are going to change, not just for the time being, but I think for the foreseeable future, there's going to be changes made that everyone, especially, you know, people in the entertainment industry, people that are out there with large groups of people, like there's gotta, there's gonna have to be adjustments made going forward, probably, you know, for our entire lifetime, I think at this point, because I think that it's taught us a lot of things about how we operate as an environment and how quickly things can change, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's terrifying, especially with what we do. Uh, you included, it's just kind of like our business is based on people getting together, you know, and it's, um, and I think about next summer, it's like, are we going to be at a point where we can have 65,000 people in one spot? I hope so, but I hope so too. I really do. I was talking to um, someone about this yesterday. It's like, even with the vaccine, I mean, it's been six months. Like, is, is there going to be enough people that are like, yep, give it to me, you know, like, are they going to trust it that we can get to a point or is it going to fade away or is it going to turn into something worse? I don't, I don't know. It's, it's terrifying. And uh, I've talked about this with some of our bandmates where it's like, you can't live in fear. And so we just have to hope for the best and, and, and adjust. And it's like, well, if we can't do that next year, we're going to have to figure out something because people will always want music. Um, but what does that look like? And we'll just have to get creative. Uh, like you said, like virtual kind of, meetings or whatever or something i don't know um i don't know fish the band fish does uh these like live stream or um who was it them someone was doing like live stream full band so it was just the band but then you could pay and like watch them essentially play a show but it was live and i was like yeah so i actually saw um actually right here in i think it was in camden last week dave matthews band played at the waterfront and they streamed it which I thought was so cool. And I've actually seen them play at, at Camden. I love going to Camden. I'm sure you've seen a show there 
uh, growing up in the area, but um, you know, it's such a cool venue, but they played outside and they streamed it and you, you know, you kind of went on and bought a ticket, but uh, it was a live performance, which I thought was a really cool idea. That was the first time I'd seen something like that where they were actually like at a venue, which I thought was, was pretty interesting. And I think, you know, I think you hit on something like everybody's going to want music. And I think music has such a way of uniting us. And um, I, I watched, gosh, I, I, the, the months are running together now, but the Foo Fighters did, Dave Grohl did um, a compilation with a bunch of different people, oh, some yes. musicians, the times like these, did you see that? Yeah, that was awesome. And it was just so good. And I, I mean, something like that, I know, I know for me, music has played like a really important role in my life. Um, even, you know, be, when my brother was alive, my brother had like a deep love of like classic rock. So growing up, you know, we're 15 and 16 years old and my mom's dropping us off uh, to, listen, to listen to Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. You know, we went and saw Bob Dylan together. We saw... Um, I'm trying to think of who else. I mean, anyone and anyone that came into the Philadelphia area that was classic rock, we, we went to that concert. And my brother was actually a self-taught guitar player. Um, so he used to uh, strum on the guitar and come up. Most of his songs were more, um, I would say, comical in nature. But they were just, it was just so fun. Like, I love the idea of just like sitting around and having somebody with a guitar playing some music, there's something about that that uh, is so incredibly special, which I'm sure you know, I'm talking to a musician, but just that power of how music can unite us, yeah. I think is, is so incredible. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, and it's, it's amazing um, just how much it gets you through too, uh, which we can talk about that later. Sorry, I had another thought. I don't wanna jump too far ahead, but um, you, you're talking about Camden. Uh, I saw, who was it? Peter Frampton came like every 4th of July with uh, Journey. Uh-huh. I'm like four years bro. Fleetwood Mac. Um, I remember, I think I was like a sophomore in college. They canceled the summer, but then they came back in like September and there was like no one there because everybody went back to college or school or whatever. Um, but yeah, that, that place uh, has a lot of memories for me. Um, and I remember the first time I got to play that venue, I was just like, wait, what? Like, yeah, I think it's set in the success to be able to like be headlining this place. I grew up going to see concerts. Um, and just knowing like how many good memories, like looking back involved, like being at a concert with your friends, like going to Dave Matthews and, you know, tailgating in the parking lot and, uh, and like just having a good time. Um, and it's, it's like scary to think about that not happening for a while, because I really think it's just like, is that moment that can like reset people and like get people out of like a depression or, or just like, you know, uh, give them that, that like temporary joy that just kind of like gets them through a week or a month or whatever. And so I hope, yeah, I hope we figure out something because I, I think it's like one of the most valuable things is just yeah. live music. So. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, I want to shift a little bit. I want to talk to you a little bit about um, family. And it, it seems to play an important role in your life. Um, you lost your dad to cancer when you were nine years old. Yeah. And I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about what that was like to go through that at such a young age. Yeah. Um, 
it's weird. I don't think uh, at nine you can like really process too much of that. (laughs) And so I remember like realizing it sucked. Like I was kind of bummed. But I remember like my, I think it was my aunt was always like, you don't cry a lot. Like, you know, and I was just kind of like, well, I mean, my dad died. Well, whatever, you know, I'm going to go play now. Um, And I remember in middle school, all of a sudden it hit me and I I was just like, holy crap, like this sucks. Like you get to a point where you're kind of like, you know, my dad should be teaching me how to golf or fish or this, like you're at that age and you realize like, uh, I don't have that guy in my life. And, um, and then the older I got, the more, uh, I, I guess the impact of it, I started realizing um, through reading books, like there was a book called uh, To Own a Dragon by Donald Miller. Um, and he talks a lot about losing his dad. And um, and then I, a, one of my best friends, his wife is a, um, a therapist, but like dealing with uh, children with trauma, whether that's like losing a parent or, you know, whatever happened. And, and she was telling me too about like, um, they're called memory black holes. And so kids, she'll have kids draw a picture and say the kid draws a tree. They'll draw this like big, dark black hole in the middle of the tree. And she'll be like, oh, what's that about? And, you know, uh, she was explaining that your brain kind of like creates these black holes to help prevent pain. And there's ways to unlock that. Uh, And music being one of them is if you find something really repetitive. And um, I remember in college, there was this a band called Shane and Shane and they had this song called chapter one. Um, and the last like two minutes was almost the same thing just over and over and over. Uh, and I remember just sitting there like zoning out, but then after that, and I would do it, like I would put that section on repeat for probably 12 minutes. And I'd never realized why I did that until she explained it to me. And it was like a way of like releasing, I guess all these built up, uh, memories and like feelings, and it was a way to like work through and process it. Um, but yeah, I feel like, you know, every decade you kind of realize uh, the loss in a different way. Um, and so I think a big reason I'm into music is because of my dad uh, passing away. I think the reason I've been able to deal with it is through music. Um, but yeah, it's just tough as a nine-year-old to process what it, what it means to lose a, a father. So it's, it's been tough, but you know, I, I think I am the person I am because of a lot of that and a lot of the way my mom taught me to kind of like deal with it and grieve and uh, process that kind of emotion. So, you yeah, know. I um, so I lost my mom and my brother. I lost my mom to cancer um, and my brother was was killed in Iraq um, five years before my mom. And, you know, I was I was let's see. 32 when my mom passed away and I felt like I was nine years old, you know, it was like I was a little girl and how can my mom be gone? And, um, but I talk a lot and and you said something really interesting, like every decade, um, the grief changes, right. And it, and it manifests into something different. And I talk a lot about this idea of like our grief journey, because I have so many people that will come to me and say, you know, when's this pain going to end? When am, when am I going to be okay? And, and I'm always very upfront to say, it's never going to go away. You're never going to stop grieving, nor should you. But it's going to change, and it's going to look different each and every year. But frankly, you should, you should hold on to that idea that you are still grieving, you know? And, and as we process 
this idea of what a grief journey is and how it manifests and how it changes, we have to look at, you know, what it means to us and, and how we move forward living lives, uh, to, you know, for me, and, and you said it too, like I, I wake up every day wanting to honor my mom and my brother. And I want to do things that would make them proud. And, and it may sound trite, but, but that's, that's what helps me to heal. You know, if I had a good day, like I owe that to them. And it was because of the things they taught me that got me to the place that I am. And do you have any advice for, I mean, you, you talked a little bit about it, but any advice you could give to others that um, lose someone close to them, you know, whether it is the power of music or um, how music and th that role can play as you're dealing with that loss? Yeah, uh, I think that the thing that's benefited me the most is um, realizing like what part of the grief I need to, I guess, acknowledge, whether that's like moving forward or appreciating uh, like what I have had with the time I had with my dad. Um, some, and, and like I said, like, you know, every decade's a little different. So right now I just had a kid a year ago. He actually just turned one. And oh, happy birthday. What's his name? Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, what's that? Sorry. I said, what's his name? Oh, Roman. Roman. Okay. Happy birthday, Roman. Thank you. Yeah, we actually, so my dad's initials were RCB and we gave my son, I didn't want to uh, give him the same name, but we gave him the same initials as my dad. So it was kind of cool um, way to honor him, I felt like. Uh, but, you know, it, it's like, especially now, I feel like in this decade, like more than ever, I wish I had a father figure, one to share, just like, you know, here's my son, here's your grandson. Uh, but also just to ask questions, you know, it's like, being a male with a one-year-old is so different than being a female from the, you know, other fathers I've talked to, the way you connect, the way you communicate that, you know, um, it's just the, the emotion you process. And I wish that, you know, there was a time that I could just be like, dad, what do I do here? You know, like, why is this, you know, whatever. Um, but I think at the same time, it's kind of like, okay, how, how should I uh, take what I remember about my dad, which was like, he was very short tempered and um, he was hilarious and always like a good time of the party. But the second I like touched something after he said, don't touch it, I was in timeout. And I was like, okay, how do I like change that and have patience with my son? So it's like, you know, I try to take the good and the bad and like just roll it into what I want to be as a father, because there are like great memories um, of him as a dad. And, uh, and so I, yeah, I don't know. I feel like you just have to kind of look at the past and say that that it's unfortunate that happened, but how do I take it and move forward in a positive way that's going to one uplift me and two make that person proud of what I become or the person I'm trying to become. And that's I feel like since like middle school has been my approach is like when I get to see my dad again, like is he going to say like I'm really proud of you. Or is he going to say like, what the hell were you doing? <laughs> like, you know, cause I think there's two responses to grief to, you know, get depressed and drink yourself to death or say like, I'm going to be better for them. Uh, and I've tried to take the latter. And that was something my mom, I remember her telling me was like, you know, sometimes life doesn't go the way you wanted it to, but life's going on. So don't waste the rest of yours because you're upset about, the way some things happen, whether that's losing a family member or whatever. So I've just really tried to make the best of um, the situation, you know, and 
uh, I think obviously like sharing your story like you do is, is so valuable because so many people just don't want to feel like they're the only ones going through this. Um, and it's interesting, like Tyler from FGL, he lost his dad. We lived with Chase Rice, who's another country artist. Um, he lost his dad and there was this like bond of like, um, yeah, just like encouraging each other to be like, you know what, we're going to be the men that our fathers taught us to be and like continue that legacy. And so I think if you can find the positive on how to just get yourself to see like, okay, this is, I feel like I'm circling the same thought, but uh, yeah, I've just really tried to keep that in mind where it's like one day I'm going to have to answer to my uh, actions and am I going to make my dad proud or not? So. I'm pretty sure you, you're uh, making him proud. I'm, uh, as, as little as I know of you, but you've done some pretty incredible things. And um, yeah, I think, I think you are. And I think that's, I think that's a important point too, that you make, you know, I talk about this idea that you can take two paths and the easy solution is just to give up. I mean, that's the easy way is just to say, I'm done. I'm, you know, I can't deal with this. Um, so it is a little bit about taking that hard way and that hard direction to say, I'm going to be the best version of myself for the people that have gone before me, because not only do I owe it to them, but I owe it to, to myself as well. Um, so I want to talk a little bit more about your family and your connection, in fact, to the military. Um, you had an uncle who was a Marine. Did he serve in Vietnam? In Vietnam. And he tragically uh, took his life after coming home from his last deployment. Can you share with us a little bit more about that? You know, as most people know, um, veteran suicide and suicide in general is a national epidemic right now. And um, we at the Travis Manning Foundation are actually part of the Prevents Task Force, which is a whole rollout through the White House on um, suicide prevention. And so it's something that is near and dear to my heart. It's near and dear to our organization. We are all about um, making sure that we are providing uh, avenues for our returning veterans to improve their, their mental health and well-being. But, you know, sadly, th those services were not there um, in Viet during Vietnam. So talk to us a little bit about your uncle and, and what, um, what that loss uh, meant to you. Yeah, um, so it wasn't like, I mean, it was many years later, but uh, so yeah, I have a few, like he went to Vietnam as a Marine. Uh, his brother served in Desert Storms and uh, unfortunately had like um, some sort of accident where he just had, he finally got, um, I don't know the proper term terminology, but they're finally like taking care of him because he had all these uh, like cancer issues in his stomach. And it was essentially from inhaling some sort of gas that happened. Yeah. Uh, the burn pits. There's a lot of different things happening there. Yeah. So um, the, those two guys served and then three of my cousins all worked at the VA for many years. And, and so I've kind of seen like both sides of it. Uh, where it's like the effects of from war and then also how we're taking care of our veterans. Um, and, and it's tough. Uh, you know, they, I feel like my cousins just felt helpless. Like they're not giving us the support to like take care of these men who really need it, uh, men and women. But um, so my uncle, I guess, came back from Vietnam and, and 
according to like, I was pretty young. So or when he passed away, I was 20, 19 or 20. Um, and he lived in Florida, so I didn't get to see him a ton, but he was always like, he was like the smart one in the family, like loved our family tree. Uh, took a trip to Paris to like go to a church to find the records from like the 1500s to like do, uh, finish our family tree. He, I was just always fascinated by him, but uh, my aunts and uncles always said like, he came back just a little different. Um, and he was always searching for something I felt like. And I remember one time he came and helped us move a couch or something. And I was like, Uncle Jerry, I love you. Thanks. Good to see you. And he's like, you love me? Like, I was like, wait, what? You know? And so I kind of started realizing there was some things he was going through mentally that I just can't imagine seeing what these guys see at war and then coming back and trying to one process it and two like live a normal life. And so, um, I think it's so important to one, just give these guys the support, whether that's therapy or, you know, the medical treatments they need. Um, you know, my uncle, my other uncle fought for almost a decade to get uh, the money to pay for these, you know, cancer issues he was having. And they were just kind of like pushing him off and saying, no, that's not war. And it's like, what do you mean it's not war related? Uh, and so it's just a bummer to kind of see, at least from my family's perspective, um, these guys serve and not, just I, I, to me, it should be like, what do you need? Thank you for your service, whatever, you know, here's medical supplies, here's health insurance, here's therapy, whatever you need, you know, you, like your brother sacrificed his life, you know, like whatever you guys need should be taken care of. That's the greatest sacrifice. So uh, it's just tough to see that. Um, but uh, too, you know, he came back from a war that America wasn't really for. And so a lot of people kind of cursed him for, being at war and serving. And so I think he just came back to the most unfortunate war um, and circumstance. And so um, it was tough to watch. Uh, and, and I could see the pain. There was definitely conversations I had where I was like, man, I, I will never understand what you're going through, unfortunately. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's true. Um, I can't imagine what our Vietnam veterans faced as they were coming back and, you know, weren't being welcomed home in the same way that our, our troops now are. And it, it's devastating to think that, that that happened. And, you know, I make sure personally, anytime I'm around a Vietnam veteran, I number one, thank them th for their service. And I, and I talk to them about their experience. Be, and I want them to know that while there's a lot of light shown on our post 9-11 veterans because we still are a nation at war and, and we have these conflicts going on, you know, their, their service and their sacrifices are not forgotten and they are just as deeply appreciated as our um, present day service members. Um, and I love the idea, you, you said, you know, why aren't our men and women being taken care of? And I think that, I think it's for a couple of reasons. I think number one, I think that, um, you know, there are bureaucratic institutions that can only do so much. And that's why organizations like ours, the Travis Manning Foundation exists. But I think there's another, um, there's another thing that needs to happen too. And that's the awareness that outside of the VA, there are incredible groups that are out there that are providing these really beneficial services to our veterans. And that is one of the reasons that 
outside of your incredible music that I love Florida Georgia Line, you guys um, do so much with the military. And I actually followed you, I guess it was last year through my friend, um, Sarah, her Facebook and page, as she toured with you as the CEO of the Independence Fund. And you guys gave these specialized track chairs out. And that's what, you know, they, they provide these specialized track chairs. And you guys were granting them on stage to disabled veterans. And I love that so much because we talk a lot about this idea of the civilian military divide. And I think that really what divides us is just a common understanding of the needs that are, that, that are required for our returning veterans and our service members. And, you know, I don't want to say it's up to groups like yours, but in some way it is. Like for you guys to have the platform that you have and then to take that and use that for good to bring awareness to, to things like this, it's incredible. So um, that, was, um, that was so important to see that within the entertainment community, you're bringing light and awareness to the men and women who serve. And I wanna thank you and the rest of the band. So please give them my deep admiration for the positive role you play in, in what you're doing for the military community. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's, it's uh, man, <laughs> every night that almost got me. I'm just side stage like, no, I'm good, I'm good. Cause you, uh, you know, you get to talk to these people and it's just like, you have no idea how this is going to positively impact my life so I can feel productive so I can just do simple things like get around the house. And, um, yeah, I'm really, you know, proud of the guys for getting involved with that and, and making it a mission and, and doing it on stage because I think that, you know, 30 seconds of these guys being acknowledged in front of 20,000 people is going to last a lifetime for them. Um, of just like, feeling uh you know confirmed in that like okay my life does matter and people are appreciative because that's probably the loudest the crowd gets every night is for these veterans that come out and you know stand up with a prosthetic leg and just like stand at the front of the stage and they don't have to say anything you know and it, um and to see like the wives or you know like even the kids sometimes where it's just like oh dad's gonna get to like be a part of our family, like, whoo, that gets me every time. It's just awesome to see. So yeah, yeah. I feel very honored to be a part of that. That's awesome. I hope once you guys get back on tour, you keep doing stuff like that. I think it's, I think it's so incredible. And I love that that's the, the loudest that the, the crowd cheers. It's, it's great. Um, okay. So we're going to close it up, but I want to end this episode as we do every one of our episodes with one final question. What does living a resilient life look like to you? Yeah, um, this is funny. I've been thinking about this. Uh, <laughs> and I just heard a podcast. What, who was it? Anyways, it doesn't matter. They were talking about something that like him and Howard Stern do. And it's called uh, Get Stuff Done or something. Uh, and they were talking about um, making a list. And I was like, okay, in my most like frustrating moments let's say in Nashville, like working at Starbucks, hardly playing a job or hardly playing gig, um, feeling like I'm not accomplishing anything. I feel like the times I was most resilient uh, were the times that I like for me made a list. And I said, you know what I'm going to do today? Even though I feel like I have nothing to do and like am working towards nothing, I'm going to make a list. And whether that says I'm going to practice for an hour, I'm going to read a book for 30 minutes. I'm going to do this, this, this. Um, 
it's working towards a future result that you don't know what that future uh, is going to be. And um, there's a good quote called, uh, it's uh, luck is preparation, preparation meeting opportunity. And I think um, doing the preparation is what makes people resilient. So when you get the opportunity, uh, for me, like my prime example is like, I could have never known that I was going to meet the two guys who are going to have like the biggest band in 2010 through 2020. And, uh, and we were going to go from playing a club to from 50 people, all of a sudden opening for Luke Bryan and selling out 5,000 tickets in one year. Um, but the four years it took me to get to that point, the five years it took me to get to that point, had I not been preparing myself and, and saying, you know what, it sucks right now, but eventually I'm going to get to where I'm going to be. Um, I think that's like what I need to do uh, personally. Uh, and it all starts with a list. It's like, okay, today I'm going to do this to benefit in the future. Um, and whether that is 30 minutes of doing something that isn't sitting in front of a, a TV or sitting on Instagram, I'm going to do something. And for me, I just have to write it down. So I see, okay, these are my goals today. This is what I'm going to accomplish. Uh, if nothing else, these are four activities that are going to get me off the couch. Um, and so for me, uh, through my down moments, um, is always finding the energy to better myself for whatever it is I'm trying to accomplish in the future. I love that. That's, I love that. And, and I think that's, that's so interesting and, and totally relevant, this idea of preparation. You know, you could have, you could have ended up living in that apartment and you wouldn't have been prepared to be asked to be the bass player for Florida Georgia Line, right? And so this idea about preparing, but not always preparing for like, I'm preparing for this, but just preparing for whatever may come, right? And, and working towards that idea. And um, I think it's awesome. And Tom, I wanna thank you so much for joining us here today. And I think you pro provide such a unique example and insight into how resilience can play in your life and and frankly in in making your dreams come true because I, you know i don't want to speak for you but i think when you first felt that sense of what it felt like to play in front of a crowd and have the crowd respond uh you've made it to that place that that you always wanted to be so that's that's pretty incredible and um my hope is that when you do get back on tour um, I will be there in Camden Yards uh, watching you and I can't wait to grab my girlfriends from high school and make Florida Georgia Line one of the stops on our concert tour uh, when things get back to normal. So thank you so very much for joining us here today and best of luck in everything you're doing. Uh, thank you so much for everything you're doing and uh, obviously for your brother's service and uh, it, no, it's a, been a pleasure. It's really good to meet you. It's good to hear that Philly accent again, too. I missed yeah, it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> thanks for joining us for another episode of the Resilient Life Podcast. And special thanks to this week's guest, Tom Beaupre, for sharing his story with us. I hope that we will be seeing Florida Georgia Line on stage sometime soon. Make sure that you like and subscribe to the Resilient Life Podcast and share with your friends. And thank you again for joining me for another episode.